Okay, continuing our listeners' commentary through the book of Colossians. In this session, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And in this section, Paul is ready to begin addressing the Colossians directly. He's laid out how he's thanking God for them, how he's praying for them, and how he's struggling for them in his ministry. And now he's ready to speak directly to them and their situation and their needs. In 2.5, he talked about how he's rejoicing to see the stability of their faith in Christ. And now, beginning here in chapter 2, verse 6, he appeals for them to live stable lives in Jesus. And then he explains why they ought to do that, why they can do that, why they should do that in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. So this section, 2, 6 through 15, is all about living stable lives in Jesus and why you ought to do that. In a nutshell, this passage helps us see why we don't need anything other than Jesus for a full, vibrant, secure life. So with that, let's jump into chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, notice that this section begins with therefore. It's really drawing a conclusion from what he said at the end of his description of his ministry, where he really said that he struggles to see their good discipline. He rejoices to see their good discipline in the faith in Jesus. Therefore, because of that, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The first thing we need to note in order to properly understand this text is we have to clarify what he means by received Christ Jesus the Lord in contrast to what we often mean by that in in our day and age. Usually when we say, have you received Jesus, we are thinking in terms of praying some prayer and asking Jesus into our heart, or maybe we've associated that with baptism, right? Like we associate that with conversion where we do some sort of response to welcome Jesus into our life. And in some ways that's appropriate. That's just not what Paul means here. When he says received, the word in Greek, paralambano, is the idea of passing on of tradition, passing on of teaching. It was the standard word in their cultural context for really communicating kind of an oral tradition, an oral teaching about somebody. So the idea of as you received Christ Jesus Lord is when you were taught about Jesus as Lord. That's what we're talking about here in this text. So you could free up the first half of verse 6 to be saying, As you were taught about Jesus in the beginning, so walk in him. And so that's the idea of this text is Paul is saying, you don't need any new knowledge. You don't need any new uh, you know, teaching about Jesus. You received the truth about Jesus in the very beginning when you first heard it or taught at him and welcomed that teaching. So as you received Christ Jesus, Lord, as you were taught in him, walk in him. And walk is the picture of caring about your life. Continue to go about living for Jesus on the basis of how you were taught about Jesus in the very beginning. And then he says in verse 7, having been firmly rooted in him, it's the picture of really being like planted deep down in Jesus. It's actually a perfect participle in Greek, which means it's referring to something that happened in the past, 
and continues in the present, with continuing effects in the present. And so it's, again, talking about when you first welcomed the teaching you heard about Jesus and you your roots went down into that teaching and the truth about Jesus. So you are rooted in him. You've attached your roots to Jesus. So having been firmly rooted in Jesus and now being built up in him, we've shifted metaphors now to this idea of now, continuing being built up, continuing to grow, continuing to be established, continuing to be strengthened in your faith so that you're built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And so there we go. We get that idea now clearly as the original teaching. So just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And so here's Paul's basic appeal really to the Colossians. And he's going to unpack this appeal, what all this looks like, what all this means in the rest of the letter. So here's his basic appeal that will be unpacked in the rest of the letter. As you receive Jesus, were taught in Jesus way back in the beginning when, uh, when Epaphras first came and preached the gospel to you, as you receive that, now you need to go about living that way, walking in that you were rooted in Jesus, and now you're being built up in him and established in him, just as you were instructed in the beginning, and that should lead to overflowing with gratitude. Just note that, that the Christian life should be marked by overflowing, by abundant gratitude, because God has done so much for us in Christ and in the gospel through Christ. And so, a healthy walk in Christ that's rooted in Jesus will be marked by thankfulness and gratitude for all the many blessings that God has provided for us in Jesus. And that'll just show up kind of repeatedly throughout the course of this letter. We'll hear about gratitude in multiple places because that's part of this really walking the way we're supposed to walk as those who have received truth about Jesus. Now, from there, what Paul then says as he begins to turn specifically to some of the, maybe the problems that are confronting the Colossian church or some of the false ideas that they're hearing. And so in verse 8, as part of walking in Christ uh, in the truth of Jesus, Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to, to Christ. So make sure no one takes you captive. Watch out for people who would uh, take you away as captive. That word, take you captive, is actually a fairly rare word in the Greek-speaking world, at least in the Greek literature that's available to us. And it's this idea of really being kidnapped or carried off as plunder. So watch out for uh, people who would carry you off like plunder in their own little war against the truth and war against God. And so watch out for those who would take you captive and carry you away as plunder. And how are they going to do that? Well, he says in verse 8, through philosophy and empty deception. Now, just to clarify, it's not that philosophy in and of itself is bad. Philosophy simply means the love of wisdom, literally. That's what the word means. It's not that. If you follow the rest of the verse, he's saying philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so it's human philosophy. It's human ideas. It's mere human traditions. It's philosophy in accordance with the elementary principles of the world. We'll talk about that in a second. 
And it's a philosophy that leads to empty deception. So make sure no one comes with wise-sounding ideas and sophisticated speech and clever knowledge that's really just empty and man-made and human. And it's full of empty deception, meaning it promises more than it can deliver. It looks good. It sounds nice. But once you get beyond it, it's hollow and it's empty. Watch out for people that bring that sort of teaching, he says, according to the traditions of men. So according to just mere human ideas, mere human traditions, mere human teaching, and according to the elementary principles of the world. We need to just pause right there and think through elementary principles of the world. The word for elementary principles is tastoikia in Greek, and it's uh, a word that uh, has uh, several possible meanings, right? The reality is words have a range of meanings. Think, for example, of in the English language, the words rose. What does the word rose mean? Well, maybe you pictured a flower. Could be that. Maybe you picture getting up. I rose from the chair. I rose from the table. You got up and you uh, walked away from it, right? It's the same word. It just depends on the context is what that word means. Well, that's just the way words work. They have a range of meanings. And this word, tastoikia, the elementary things, has several possible meanings. So here's its range of meanings. It could mean the basic principles of teaching, basic ideas, basic fundamental teachings in our context, particularly basic religious teachings. And in some places in the New Testament, it means that. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. It clearly means that. The context makes it explicit. We're talking about basic teachings of God's Word in Hebrews 5, 12. That's one of its possible meanings. Another possible meaning of Tostoikai is the material elements of the earth, the basic elements of the earth. For example, uh, earth, wind, fire, right? Like that sort of stuff, right? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. The word tostoikai shows up there. Context makes it very, very clear that it means those material elements, the fundamental elements of the earth, of the world. That's one possible meaning. And then the third possible meaning is yeah, this word tostoikia could refer to personal spirit beings that like there's this idea in the ancient world that nations and regions were kind of controlled by um, like spiritual powers, demons, angels, like spiritual powers, some sort of false gods that kind of controlled that region, ruled that area that they needed to placate. So it could refer to that. Um, those personal, personal spirit beings of some sort. And one of the things that's important to notice is that when Paul uses the word tastoikia, it is almost always, except in one case, connected with the world, the, the elementary things of the world. And so, well, what does that mean? And unfortunately, context doesn't make it super clear what Paul has in mind. Clearly here, it could be teachings because he's talking about right philosophy empty deception he just talked about the things they were instructed in in verses six and seven so maybe it has that idea but then if you read the preceding context what follows from this he talks about the rulers and the powers and how jesus uh, conquered them and disarmed them through the cross so he's talking about these these kind of spiritual powers and forces that are arrayed against human well-being and human flourishing so maybe it means that and it's not a hundred percent clear which one he has in mind 
so we have to make a, kind of a judgment call, an interpretive call on what we're, which one we're getting at. I think, based on the context, I tend towards meaning number three. It clearly doesn't mean material elements of the earth here, so we can throw out meaning number two. It's possible that it means meaning number one, basic you know, teachings, basic religious teachings. Possible it means that. Um, but I think in view of the following context, it probably means like these personal spirit beings, these spiritual powers that are uh, at war against God's good world and against God's people that are arrayed against, well, the controlled people and people lived in fear of. Uh, I think it, that's what it refers to because he talks then about Jesus conquering those things in the following context. So it would be another way of talking about like the principalities and powers that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, I think that's what we're talking about here. So he says, watch out for people who would take you captive through philosophy and ideas and empty deception that are according to the traditions of mere humanity, mere people, and according to these elementary principles of the world, the spiritual forces and spiritual powers and uh, really kind of supernatural quasi-godlike powers that rule the world um, rather than according to Jesus himself. So watch out for those things. And now in verses 9 through 15, he's going to tell us why. Notice verse 9 begins with 4. It's giving the basis, explaining the reason. Why should you watch out for those kinds of people that would take you captive? Why should you not listen to these kinds of teachings? Why do you need to work hard to make sure you're, you're walking firmly in Jesus and you want to listen to only the things that come from Jesus? Why should you do that? Well, verse 9 says, For... In him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, in Jesus, you have very God of very God. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Not just a little bit of God, not part of God, not some sort of second tier of God. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so, what you get in Jesus is 100% God and 100% human being. We don't have all of that here, but in the totality of New Testament teaching, that's what you get. You have it implied here with all the fullness of deity in bodily form, in human, fleshly, bodily form. You have the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. And so you, you don't have to go clamoring elsewhere to find all the fullness of God. You don't have to try to have some sort of mystical experience to have all the fullness of God. You just need Jesus. All the fullness of God is right there in Jesus in bodily form, in down-to-earth, concrete, clear bodily form in Jesus. And not only that, you should avoid those false ideas. You should avoid human traditions and teachings and philosophy and empty deception. You should avoid all of that, not only because all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, but, verse 10, also because in him you have been made complete. The word complete is actually from the same uh, word as the word fullness in verse 9. And so all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. And in him, you have been made full. You have been filled up. You have been fulfilled. You've been given everything you need for a full, complete human life that God has to offer. And so 
In him you have been completed. You have been fulfilled and filled up. And not only that, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Again, that's one of those phrases that leads me to think we're talking by elementary principles about spiritual powers and spiritual forces because the, the words rule and authority point in that direction. They refer to... Um, rulers and powers and authorities and the principalities and powers that Paul talks about in other places. And so those words are, are referring to that. And, and Jesus is the head over those things. Like So if there are any authorities, any powers, whether spiritual or whatever, Jesus is over all of that. He is the head over all rule and authority. Not just some all. He's in charge of it all. He is the, the most powerful person in the entire universe. And verse 11, and in him, as Paul continues to draw out really how, how complete we are in Jesus and how Jesus made us complete and how we have everything we need in him, he says in verse 11, and in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, pause. That's weird. Why all of a sudden did we just jump to circumcision? Well, remember, um, it seems as if, and it's going to become much more clear as we go, that the swirling ideas maybe that are kind of troubling the Colossian church at their heart are Jewish. And at the heart of Jewishness is circumcision. And so if the Colossians are being maybe you know, tempted towards or maybe being compelled in some way to consider uh, shifting from exclusively just following Jesus to adding Jewishness to their faith in Jesus, well, circumcision is the mark of that. Circumcision is the practice that they will be really compelled to, to undertake if they're going to add Jewishness to it. And so Paul wants them to know, you don't need to do that. You've already experienced ultimate, true, final circumcision in Jesus. Notice he describes it as a circumcision made without hands. What does he mean by that? Well, it's not physical circumcision. It's spiritual circumcision. It's the spiritual circumcision that God actually promised in the Old Testament, that someday he would bring about a greater, a deeper circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. In fact, circumcision very early on in Jewish teaching became really kind of a, was used metaphorically for uh, like spiritual cleansing, cutting sin out of the heart. You have that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where uh, Deuteronomy says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Like, don't be stubborn. Don't be rebellious. Circumcise your heart. You see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 4, uh, verse 4, where Jeremiah writes, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah. And so very early on in the Old Testament, circumcision is clearly used as a symbol for spiritual cleansing. And in fact, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy actually promises that after the exile, when God restores his people and restores the fortunes of his people, he's going to do a greater work of circumcision. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, in the context of really warning them that they, they're going to be unfaithful. God's going to send them away into exile. But now, at some point, God will bring them back from exile. When he does, this is what God's going to do. Moreover, 
De Deuteronomy says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And so circumcision becomes really this picture of this spiritual cleansing. And what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 is that has happened in Jesus, by Jesus. You've already experienced this deeper, greater, long ago promised circumcision. And so if the Colossians are being, you know, really coerced or encouraged or even tempted in some way to consider being circumcised and become Jewish so that they can be complete in, in you know, really have experienced all that God has. Paul's saying, you don't need to do that. If you've got Jesus, you've already been made complete. Not only that, you've already experienced this spiritual circumcision in Christ. Then he continues on and says, well, how do I know that happened? How do I know that I experienced that spiritual circumcision? When did that happen? What kind of concrete, objective line in the sand made it clear that I've experienced that? And Paul says, well, here's what it is. It's baptism. He says in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so he has shifted his metaphors, but he's continuing to describe this process by which Jesus has made us complete, this spiritual circumcision that we've experienced. And he says, you were buried with him in baptism. So baptism portrays this burial with Jesus, this death with Jesus, in which you were also raised up with him. And so baptism is this picture of death, burial, resurrection with Jesus, just like Jesus was crucified and buried and raised up. Well, you've identified with him in that, and the way it was portrayed for you was your death, burial, and resurrection that was portrayed in baptism. And that baptism has any value is effective in any sort of way because of your faith, he says, through faith in the working of God. And that's a really important observation that baptism in and of itself doesn't achieve anything. Otherwise, if you don't have faith, you're just getting wet, right? Like someone shouldn't get baptized just because someone else is or just because it seems like a good idea. We should never coerce anyone to get baptized. Baptism has any benefit because of faith, specifically faith in the working of God. And so in baptism, uh, we are marked out as belonging to God because of our faith in him who raised Jesus from the dead. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then God also has the power to give you new life as well, to give you spiritual cleansing and spiritual life. And so he's done that um, in and through your faith in the working of God. Then, in verse 13, Paul returns to the picture of circumcision and basically now ties all this together saying this. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions, so your former life, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he returns to this picture of saying that, that pre-Christ life, living in the flesh, living in the transgressions, that's like being dead. That's like living in the uncircumcision of your flesh, this spiritual uncircumcision, which was really a picture of living outside of God, away from God, in your fallenness. That's the idea of flesh. So when you were in that state, he made you alive together with Christ. And so now God has brought you to life in and through Jesus, and he's already described in verse 12, 
what and he really painted that picture how that is portrayed in baptism he's brought you to life so you've experienced new life in christ god made you alive together with him and then he describes really two kind of ways that played out having forgiven all of our transgressions and so God brought us to life, and he has graced us with forgiveness. He's forgiven all our transgressions, all our wrongdoings, all the things that we had done wrong. He has forgiven us of all those things. In fact, the word for forgiveness here is the verb form of the word grace. There's different words sometimes used for forgiveness in the New Testament. Here, this is the verb form of the word for grace. So we have been given grace and now forgiven all our wrongdoings. And then Paul notes two barriers that stood between us and God and how the cross eliminated those barriers. He says he canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. It's kind of a cumbersome phrase, but Paul is picturing really, um, seemingly picturing the Old Testament law or God's law in general that marked us out as debtors like we were in debt to God we had done wrong and there was no possibility that we could ever pay him back and all the wrongdoings were like we were in debt to that and so he canceled out the certificate of debt that is a really a portrayal of how God restored our relationship and how God forgave our sins is this debt was canceled imagine say your mortgage or your house payment or like whatever it is you or your car payment you have a you have a huge bill that's left and you're making payments on it slowly there in this case is one you could have never given an entire lifetime never paid off so you have this massive debt that you can never pay off and the one to whom you owed the debt just canceled it like said, you know what? I'm not going to make you pay this. That's what we're saying happened in Jesus. How did he do that? Well, he did that, and he says, uh, by taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so this debt, this IOU, this bill that we could never pay was hostile to us. God removed it, took it out of the way. It stood between a whole, healthy, vibrant, human flourishing, a vibrant relationship with God, and he removed it by nailing it to the cross. So the cross took care of that debt paid that debt and so now it's like it's paid in full and we don't have to pay it because Jesus paid it for us and so it's removed taken out of the way that's sort of the picture that's painted here and so we no longer have to worry about that that's no longer hanging over our head it's no longer something between us and God that stands between our relationship our relationship is free and clear because that is removed not only that, the other barrier that stood between us and God presumably were these rulers and authorities, these principalities and powers that control mankind and cause them to live in fear and can, you know, control their behavior. So verse 15, how did Jesus deal with that? Well, he having disarmed, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, notice that he, he triumphed over them, he disarmed them, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. And so when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them. And it's really playing off the imagery of what would happen in the ancient 
uh, Greco-Roman world. Like when Rome would defeat a you know opposing king, he would bring that king and some prisoners of war, march them through the capital, right, and you know throwing you know some of the the spoils of war to the populace in like a giant celebration parade, um, and these guys would be in chains and they would be humiliated and shamed. Oftentimes they would be uh, executed at the end of the parade. That was Roman practice. Well, Paul playing off that imagery saying Jesus did that to all these spiritual forces and spiritual powers that, that controlled and dominated and, and lorded over humankind. And Jesus triumphed over them through what he did on the cross. And so now his death and resurrection, Jesus is victorious. He is the king. And we have been uh, set free from these powers by him. And thus, we are free to go. I love the way N.T. Wright portrays this in his commentary on Colossians. He writes these words. He said, These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him when he went to the cross. In one of his most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and one moreover which shows in what physical detail Paul could envision the horrible death that Jesus died, he declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping those powers naked, was holding them up to public shame, and was leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. And so by virtue of uh, what Jesus did on the cross, he now has actually triumphed over the spiritual powers, and they no longer have any authority or any power or any control over mankind in Christ Jesus. So before we wrap up this section, let's draw out really a main important implication for us as God's people today. And that's this, that what Paul has just portrayed in this section is that we as God's people, we don't need to look for anything extra. We don't need any additives to our faith in Jesus. We don't need any substitutes, right? Like we don't need anything more. We don't need anything, you know, in addition. We don't need anything. Christ is supreme. So to find and experience the very fullness of God, you only have to look to Jesus. If you're in Christ, you, you have been filled up. You have been completed. You have the very fullness of God. You've been made alive with real, true life again. You're 100% forgiven. You've been set free from all the hostile powers who seek to control and destroy. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the world's true king. His kingdom has come. Someday it will come completely. And if you're in Christ, you're part of it. So stand firm in Jesus. Don't keep looking elsewhere. Don't keep looking for more. Look to Jesus because Christ is supreme. You have everything you need in him. You need nothing extra. Stand firm in Jesus.